This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. We made it to the end of the week. Time to take a step back from the headlines and dig a little deeper on the weekly news recap. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Trials underway for former city council powerhouse Ed Burke. Well, it was another day in federal court for that man and his team, Team Burke, the lawyers defending the, the former most powerful man on city council. The elders that I spoke with say they can't ever remember things being so bad, and they want disruptors put on notice that if they can't behave in public meetings, they can't participate. You are intentionally disenfranchising three black aldermen right now. We've convened a panel of journalists to break down those stories and more. Lee John Greco is a government and politics reporter for Crane Chicago Business. John Seidel is federal court reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. And joining us for the first time is Revy Beshwal, anchor of ABC7's 5 and 6 p.m. newscasts. Revy started out by telling us why city council called a censure vote against the mayor's resigned floor leader, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. Well, because uh, they are having trouble getting along. That's certainly the case. But it actually stems back to another meeting that happened on November 2nd, so a week ago Thursday, where there was a discussion about Chicago Sanctuary City uh, and uh, status and and all the rest of it that went around that as it relates to the migrant crisis. And so uh, as part of that sort of legislative parliamentary discussion that was going on there. There was an attempt to try to get uh, a vote to happen around whether we should continue to have the sanctuary city uh, status. Mm -hmm. And there were people who supported Mayor Johnson who did not want this to actually happen. And so in an attempt to get a legislative quorum, there was some rustling and there was, in fact, possibly some physicality going on to uh, prevent that vote from happening. And as a result, it it, it turned into a bit of a bullying exercise. And Carlos Ramirez uh, Rosa, who was uh, the alderman who was the floor leader at the time for uh, Mayor Johnson, apparently prevented Emma Mitz, uh, Alderman, Alderwoman Emma Mitz, from actually going and voting. And uh, that turned into a big bullying exercise, and there had yeah. to be a big apology after I mean, that. Alderman Ray Lopez, I think, really led the charge for the censure vote, right, telling reporters that Ramirez Rosa was aggressively restraining Emma Mitz. I mean, he basically accused Ramirez Rosa of, of physical assault, right? Right. Actually blocking her from going through a door to get into the chamber for this vote. She said it was bullying. She said she felt like a little girl back in the South again and that it was entirely wrong. And then this all resulted in, in uh, eventually there had to be an apology around this that had to come about. And that came later this week, in the middle of the week, actually, where Carlos Ramirez Rosa uh, apologized to her. She accepted the apology and they attempted to try to get on with, with business. But in the, in the meantime, he lost his position as the floor leader for Mayor Johnson and his committee chairmanship as well. So he has paid a price. And even after she accepted his apology, 
there was still other alder, alders who wanted to uh, wanted to censure him. And that was actually voted down by one vote. And yeah. the one vote was Emma Mitz. Well, let's hear some of what you, you just described. Alderman Ramirez Rosa did publicly apologize for his interaction with Alderman Mitz. Let's listen. I feel awful about everything that happened and the role that I played in everything that occurred last week. His apology was followed by what appeared to be that heartfelt hug between the two of them. I mean, any idea whether there was a resolution between them, Ravi? I, I think the pictures showed that there were. We, yeah. uh, we made a story about it ourselves the next day because it was it was real video of them actually hugging after all that had gone down in, in council. And yeah. tempers were flaring earlier. So I, I don't think you can fake that. But that wasn't the end of it for Ramirez Rosa. He apologized again to several other alders who filed complaints against him. Here's a bit of that apology. It is critical that we show each other respect. The people of Chicago deserve nothing less. So, I mean, does anyone think that Alderman Lopez might have misrepresented what actually happened here? Uh, I think that tempers were flaring pretty, pretty sharply. And in, in connecting with... Um, uh, with the people who cover City Hall for us at ABC7 and uh, Craig Wall in particular, he said that he had never seen, he told me he had never seen this level of of angst and anxiety and kind of anger going on between uh, alders in a long, long time. So to suggest that this wasn't really a, a tortured discussion, I think isn't, isn't correct. It, it, was, it was pretty tortured. Yeah. And the actual censure vote, what, what happened there? In the end, it, as I said, it uh, it fell by one vote, and the one person who voted against it was Emma Mitz. Was Emma Mitz supposedly the victim in all this? Now, uh, now, has the mayor hinted at all at what might who might be the new floor leader? I have not heard. Maybe those who know uh, those who know this a little bit closer. Yeah, I have not heard just yet. But uh, who knows? Maybe Carlos Ramirez Rosa sits in the penalty box for a little while and he comes back again because he's a pretty strong leader. Oh, I never thought about that option. Mm -hmm. I think also a little bit of context too and what's happening in City Hall. I mean, you mentioned obviously there is a lot of animosity there, um, but you know you asked about Ray Lopez, uh, mm -hmm. if, you know, he's sort of stirring things up here. Uh, you know, it is important to know that uh, he's running for Congress as well. Um, so, you know, this might be a little bit of a campaign thing that he is doing here. Um, so whether, you know, those those alleged assaults, those happen. Um, think I mean, that's, that's, that's literally what Ramirez Rosa is accusing him of. Exactly, exactly. And there was another allegation as well uh, that Ramirez Rosa, um, you know, used his position as zoning chair mm -hmm. uh, to also bully. I feel like that is uh, the bigger thing here that kind of harkens back to, you know, the machine days. Um, so if that is actually true, um, that seems to be a bigger problem. Is, is, that, is that how... Is that, as you say, it harkens back to the machine, but isn't that also how politics is done still somehow in Chicago? Yeah, to a certain point, although I think maybe, you know, threatening to say, well, you won't be able to build this in your ward. That does seem a little bit like bullying. I don't know. I think there's a big question of now that Brandon Johnson is here and we have this new progressive wing in power. I think people are really asking themselves, you know, what is the way that business should be done in Chicago? Should we do things, quote unquote, you know, the Chicago way? Is that the right way? The well, Chicago his big, way. <laughs> his big word was collaboration. Right. Oh my gosh. We have to consult. We have to consult with each other. Yeah. Well, in other city council news, because believe it or not, there's more. Uh, Alders <laughs> finally got to vote on the proposal known as Bring Chicago Home. Right. Uh, Mayor Johnson was at a rally just before the vote. Let's listen. 
We know that almost 70% of those who are on house live in communities like mine, in black communities. And it is well past time that we prioritize the interests of working people, but especially those who have been harmed the most. So we're not just bringing Chicago home. We're not just raising revenue. We're actually demonstrating how the city of Chicago is leading the way for the rest of the world. All right, bring us up to speed here, Lee. How big of a a victory do you think this was for for Mayor Johnson? Well, this is a huge victory. Uh, He's, you know, got on a couple of progressive feathers in his hat. Uh, We just had, uh, you know, paid leave uh, yesterday. Uh, That came in, bring Chicago home a second, one fair wage. Um, So, you know, this is huge for the uh, progressive party in Chicago right now. Uh, On the other side, uh, the business community really feels like they are being hit. And uh, Bring Chicago Home is a good example of where, uh, you know, businesses, developers, uh, real estate industry feels Mm -hmm. like they're being victimized by the Johnson administration right now. Um, Basically, what Bring Chicago Home proposes is um, it's a it's a one time tax, so to speak. It's on the real estate transfer tax. So when a property is sold. Um, so it increases uh, the real estate transfer tax on properties over a million dollars. And then there's a third tier that's um, above 1.5. Uh, but then it actually lowers uh, the real estate transfer tax for sales that are under a million dollars. So which is, you know, the majority of sales, that's obviously so that, uh, you know, homeowners get on board with this so that the majority of Chicagoans get on board with this. Um, But the real estate industry is really griping right now. Um, And, you know, some of that might be legitimate because uh, office vacancy rates are, you know, at record highs right now. Uh, Downtown Chicago is still reeling uh, from the pandemic days. Um, Yet the problem yeah. still persists, right? We still need a solution for homelessness of course. in the city. Yeah. Right? Um, now it's going to be up to the voters to decide. So, I mean, what do you all think we're going to be seeing leading up to March? I mean, I've been curious to see how that campaign is going to play out. And March isn't that far away for it them isn't. to sell this. It really isn't. Yeah, March yeah. 19. Yeah, that's around the corner, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned paid leave there, Lee. Uh, Chicago will now have... One of the most generous paid leave policies in the country, city council voted. uh, Well, it it was delayed earlier in the week, but then it finally passed. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, passed last night. Um, uh, I was. What does the policy look like? Yeah, so the policy is basically uh, it guarantees uh, five six days, um, five days off, or whatever you would like. Um, And uh, the big compromise here was that uh, businesses with fifty or fewer employees would be exempt from uh, having to pay out unused days off uh, when workers leave. Um, That original carve out that Johnson gave his sort of original concession uh, was ten employees or under. Um, So, you know, one might think that that was a victory for the business community. And it was enough to get uh, some small businesses on board, some of your local chambers of commerce, some black and Latino businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, Still not quite enough to appease, you know, the bigger guys, your Chicago Chicago land chamber of commerce, uh, restaurant industry folks, um, you know, hospitality industry. uh, They still came out against this. Um, but as you said, you know, again, this is uh, a huge win uh, for the progressives, and it is um, one of the most expansive versions of this in the country right now. John, we were talking about city council, so we can't forget to mention the long-awaited <laughs> corruption trial of Chicago's longest-serving alderman, 
So update us on how jury selection is going with ex Alder Ed Burke's yeah, trial. It, it's going slow. It's going. <laughs> it's, it's going, going slow. Very slow. Slower than most people expect. I think most people thought we'd be uh, to opening statements by Wednesday. Um, instead, Wednesday night we still weren't there. Uh, Judge Kendall insisted you're going to pick this jury by lunch on Thursday, and we're going to have opening statements. Then I walked into the courtroom Thursday morning, and everyone's wearing a mask, mm. <laughs> which we knew was a bad sign. And it turns out one of the attorneys in the case has tested positive for COVID, and that's put the entire thing on hold uh, for a week. Uh, we still don't have a jury, although she she wants, once again, for them to pick that jury by lunch this coming Thursday, and then we should be should be rolling. But this is supposed to go into mid-December, and now we're it's getting oh my pushed goodness. back even what, further. What is the rule about... COVID now? I mean, as we approach the end of 2023, is that just sort of a, a standard rule from, from a year and a half ago? I, no, I don't think it's quite a standard rule yet. I think they're following guidance, uh, probably CDC and Judge Kendall. Mm. I mean, it's her courtroom and she ruled we're going we're gonna to set everything aside mm. for, a, for a week. Do we know which attorney's sick? Um, no. Um, there, there were a few who weren't present in the courtroom Thursday. I probably shouldn't <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> disclose anybody's medical situation uh, right now, but um, but yeah, there were some just me being a journalist. Yeah, actually, right, <laughs> Sorry, right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, just in that juror selection process, uh, what kinds of things were the jurors being asked? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, they were being asked uh, about their pets. They were being asked about their TV shows. <laughs> they were being asked whether or not uh, they follow politics and what kind of politics they follow. They were being asked whether or not they know about Alderman Burke or the case against him. I, I counted about sixteen uh, Chicagoans who were among the 54 who were questioned. Um, and, you know, generally, the, especially those from Chicago had heard of Alderman Burke and, right. and had, you know, some of them knew about the case and, and some of them didn't. But uh, as big of a deal as this was in 2019, I mean, I was even struck by somebody who said he lived in Streeterville up until a year ago. He lived there for seven years and he said he didn't notice any coverage about the prosecution of Ed Burke or anything like that. So, Interesting. I mean, it's, it's not on everybody's <laughs> radar like we think. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that this this has been a pretty packed courtroom. So I'm curious if everyone's worried now about, you know, the possibility of other people involved in the trial getting COVID. There were two other attorneys who weren't feeling well, we were told. But as, far as, as far as the jurors go, I mean, you know, you're right. There are a lot of people in the courtroom, but, um, you know— for what it's worth, the, the lawyers who were absent were on the other side of the courtroom from where the jurors were sitting. I don't think there's really concern there. But, yeah, I mean, we were talking about that uh, at the courthouse yesterday. Like, what if somebody else catches it and then we have to delay further? So here's hoping we, we get back to court on Thursday and we get this thing rolling and we can finally deal with this case that's been – I mean, we've been waiting for this for five years to, to get to hear this evidence. Has it been that long? Jeez, yeah, yeah. five years. The raid was five years ago this month. My goodness. Well, <laughs> as we close out our city hall portion of the recap, Mayor Johnson announced this week that he was creating a new agency at City Hall, the Department of Reentry. Lee, just tell us briefly what that is. Yeah, sure. So uh, Department of Reentry would have a budget of $5 million and four employees charged with helping formerly incarcerated individuals in Chicago get, quote, what they need to thrive in the city. Yeah. So yeah. folks returning back to the city, they can find jobs and other really important services. Maybe great for Ed Burke. We'll see. Too soon. Who knew that he would be the uh, poster boy of the progressive agenda? <laughs> Now on to Springfield. Illinois lawmakers considered some important issues this week as they wrapped up the fall veto session, but they're still divided over how to handle upcoming elections for the Chicago Board of Education. 
Yeah. So uh, this was a big deal in Springfield this week. Uh, thought that it was going to come together, but uh, there's still some daylight between the House and Senate. So basically, to take you back a little bit, um, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union uh, has long been pushing uh, CPS to go to um, elected school board, or, you know, school board elections. Um, and Brennan Johnson was, you know, when he was an organizer, he was part of that push. Um, so now fast forward, we're supposed to have these elections uh, in November of 2024. It is up to the Illinois General Assembly to draw the electoral district map. Uh, there was a lot of fighting over that. They finally came together. But um, they still haven't agreed on what those elections should look like. Mm. And so um, the Senate put forth uh, a bill that would basically go to a full election uh, in 2024 so that um, all 20 of these seats um, would be up for election. The House version, however, um, brought by Representative Ann Williams, has basically this hybrid system so that in 2024, uh, 10 members would be elected and then the remaining would be appointed by the mayor, mm -hmm. which, of course, right now is Mayor Brendan Johnson, right. formerly of the CTU. The CTU has endorsed uh, that plan that has that hybrid system, which is a little odd given that they used to, you know, want a fully elected board. But, um, you know, who is mayor right now? Does that maybe factor into that a little so bit? So some lawmakers wanted only a portion of the board to be elected at first. While others thought the entire school board should be elected. Yeah, exactly. And when you dig into it a little bit, it gets a little more complicated. Um, you know, the Senate version would then stagger the terms and then eventually the House version uh, would have a fully elected board uh, by, I believe, 2026. Uh, it also seemed the battle wasn't just over the map, but when the election would happen. Is that right? Uh, well, uh, the election would happen so you would have a general election yeah um uh that sorry can you clarify for me when you're saying when <laughs> sorry so right so as far as like how how soon are we how how close are we to to this actually oh becoming? how so oh to when it when the election yes. would happen um well if you want to file petitions um that process would start in uh march um and then the petition deadline is in june um, gotcha. so as far as like yeah when the election would happen basically um the general assembly is going to come back in january um and so if they don't get that done in january or february you're kind of Coming up against that deadline, um, the Senate president uh, who brought forth his version of the bill, um, Senator Herman, uh, says, yeah, there's more than enough time to get this together. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see if voters and, you know, potential candidates have enough time. Uh, you know, I, I think that th something really interesting here that's going on with this is you get out of the weeds of, of the legislative part of it and the politicking is that it really shows it's an illustration of what governing is for Brandon Johnson versus what he ran on, especially given his background with the Chicago Teachers Union and the realities of governing, having to deal with all these other stakeholders and how many people are asking all of us, well, how's he doing? How is this new administration doing? Is, are they getting along with other people? Are they listening? And this is an example that the ideal approach or what, he, what it is that he would have wanted, which is all elected, really has to give way to a broader set of, of, of conversations. And, uh, and those are starting to happen. You know, it was interesting yesterday. Uh, I asked him, uh, as did uh, Becky Vivi over at Chalk Beach, Chicago, basically, you know, which version of this do you actually support? Um, and 
he wouldn't commit to either version. He kind of went on this long uh, meandering bit about, well, this is the first time they're going to have an election. We should do this in a deliberative way, um, you know, which is essentially the total opposite of what the CDU <laughs> has wanted. All of a did, sudden, now did, that did he's he say mayor, strong, a stronger, better, safer Chicago? He did not, and he did not say best freaking city in the world this time, but, you know. It's a slogan. Hey, watch your language, Lee. This is public radio. All right, so a few hundred kids went to Springfield this week to support another school-related issue. Uh, Give us the latest on the private school scholarship program called Invest in Kids. Well, long story short, uh, it is dead. Um, It expires December 31st, and as I mentioned earlier, the General Assembly uh, does not return until mid-January. Basically, uh, this is a um, it's a scholarship program. Um, so if you uh, donate to one of these schools and you get a tax credit, um, the supporters of the program say that you know it it helps kids from underprivileged backgrounds. You know, go to these great private schools. Um, you know, public school uh, backers um, and you know again CTU uh, describe this as a voucher program. Um, it. It seemed like maybe there was going to be a compromise here. I believe the House had put forth a proposal um, that decreased the tax credit a little bit. Um, there were some discussions here and there that I was hearing about maybe staggering uh, that, you know, quote unquote, sunset date. Yeah. So that kids already enrolled in the program um, could remain a part of it until they graduate. Um, but, you know, unfortunately for those kids, um that is going to end for them uh, this coming spring. Um, Republicans, meanwhile, are saying that they want to somehow revive this uh, when they return. Um, I'm not really sure what that would look like. I was a little bit confused when I got that email (laughs) from Senate Republicans. (laughs) But but, how? Yes, exactly. But how? Um, But, you know, in the end, uh, I was in Springfield this week. And if you were in the rotunda, you could just hear all these kids and teachers, Mm -hmm. um, you know, shouting, save our scholarship, uh, oh. chanting on and on. Um, yeah, it was a very emotional story. We, we were yeah. talking to many of those people on ABC. You know, how do, how do you go three years and not get the last year of your scholarship? And maybe sunsetting those that's people tough. through. And that that's really where, where this becomes such a real story for people, regardless of what you think of vouchers. Mm-hmm. Before I take you out of the hot seat for, <laughs> for a bit, Lee, another thing we saw, legislation that would lift Illinois' moratorium on new nuclear plants. That passed. Yes. So um, this is a a little bit complicated because it only applies to uh, what are called small modular reactors. So it's something like, you know, any reactors under 300 megawatts. Um, So this moratorium went into effect in the 1980s um, because basically uh, there was a bunch of nuclear waste uh, that was uh, being taken to Morris, Illinois, And so this uh, nuclear bill that came up um, earlier in the session was vetoed by Governor Pritzker because he thought that it opened the door to building new larger reactors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, he and Republican um, Senator Sue Rezin uh, basically worked out a compromise. So, hey, we're only going to work on, uh, you know, lifting the moratorium on small reactors. Uh, So that went through this week. Um, It, you know, has bipartisan support. And obviously the governor, we're expecting that he's going to sign it. Uh, Some environmental groups like the Illinois chapter of the Sierra Club still say, 
hey, 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 we still don't really know how to uh, dispose of nuclear waste. The federal government hasn't really said much on uh, how that is going to be solved. Uh, So they still have their concerns. It's also worth noting that these uh, small reactors are still in the development stage. Um, You know, the technology is pretty early. There's apparently a few in Russia and China um, that have been stood up or at least in development. Um, So uh, it's a little early to say. I don't think we're going to see these next year cropping up across the state. (laughs) Right. All right, John, uh, a federal appeals court weighed in on an important issue, the Illinois assault weapons ban. Where is that at this point? Where do we stand? What is the latest? Well, the latest as it stands. I mean, it's in effect. But we've been watching the challenges uh, ever since it passed in January. Um, You know, it survived tests in the Illinois Supreme Court. But Mm -hmm. we've been waiting for the Seventh Circuit of Appeals Court of Appeals to uh, weigh in on these uh, uh, preliminary injunctions that were sought in federal court, both um, here and uh, downstate. Uh, And this all kind of goes back to a Supreme Court case from uh, last year, which uh, um, kind of established a two-part test for looking at some of these laws. One is basically whether or not the Second Amendment applies. The other talks about whether or not a gun regulation uh, comports with history and tradition in the United States. And and I feel like that's where a lot of the conversation has been since then about whether, you know, we've been talking about Bowie knives. And and during arguments in in June, there were questions about uh, Tommy guns in Chicago, which were uh, certainly commonplace. Wow. Uh, But those were uh, outlined. Um, this decision came down uh, Friday af- last Friday afternoon, and uh, w- what stu- stuck out to me the most about it was that the Seventh Circuit came down and said, no, the Second Amendment doesn't apply. Uh, it found that these assault weapons in question under the, under the law are really more like military weapons and therefore don't enjoy Second Amendment protection. Mm. Uh, they did go go ahead and say that if we did move on to the second step, uh, you know, history and tradition, that it would fare no better there. Uh, but so that's where it stands. They agreed with federal judges uh, here in Chicago um, who decided not to block the law, and it undid a preliminary injunction that was issued downstate. Um, so the law is in effect, and now we're waiting to see. There's um, there's a there's a challenge that uh, a few of the plaintiffs are ensuing called an on bond. There's they're basically they're asking the entire Seventh Circuit to have another hearing. I see. But really, this is you know probably going to the Supreme Court. We've already heard from one of the plaintiffs that they're going to try and petition to the Supreme Court, which has actually already been asked to intervene once and declined to do so. Um, I, I guess I'd be surprised if the Supreme Court takes this up in this stage because, it, just to be clear, this was not – this because we're dealing with pre- preliminary injunctions, this is not a full review of the law. I mean, there's there's more briefing that can be done, more arguing that can be done. So I'm not sure if the Supreme Court would take it up in this posture, hmm. um, but we'll have to see. The other part that's interesting, you mentioned, it, it's the Seventh Circuit, yes, but it was only three judges on the Seventh, right. on the seventh Circuit, and they, they voted two to one. Uh, right. to to agree to what you had just reported right there. But part of the argument that was also interesting against uh, being able to strike this down was to say that this issue around tradition, well, you know, these 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 current weapons are quite popular now. And so therefore, uh, that should be that should be part of the argument, to which I believe it was Diane Wood, Justice John, Diane Wood said, well, this isn't a popularity contest. So mm-hmm. these kinds of uh, issues about tradition and popularity are going to be the kinds of things that the United States Supreme Court perhaps decides to weigh in on or maybe chooses not to. No, I'm sure they probably will weigh in at some point when it comes to these assault weapons. And you're right. I mean, the, the, the justice... W- 
the argument has been, you know, once something is in common use, you can't ban it. But that does just basically mean that a popularity contest decides a constitutional principle is how they, they looked at it. I'm not sure that this ruling from the Seventh Circuit is going to hold up under the current Supreme Court. But, you know, first we have to get there soon. I, I'm sure we'll get there eventually. All right, Revy, a hotel in the swanky Streeterville neighborhood near the Mag Mile, it's being converted into a homeless shelter. What are the details we should know? The details you should know are what's it like for a reporter to get a man on the street or a woman on the street kind of reaction to this story in Streeterville. It's interesting. It's where TV tells you a different kind of a story than the Augusta oh, did newspapers. did you run into challenges there? <laughs> well, it, 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 it's interesting because people on the street understand that this is this is actually about the homeless problem in Chicago as opposed to the migrant problem, which is, which is or concern, which are sort of two sides of a different Yeah, and of, I'm glad you point. made that distinction because this hotel will not be used to house Migrants. Right. This is a part of the city's sheltering system, and the, which is at capacity now, of course, because of what's happening with migrants. But um, I don't mean to be facetious about that. But the Selena Hotel in, in Streeterville uh, has received a grant from the Illinois Department of Human Services for seven months to take everybody out of there and turn it into essentially a homeless shelter. And that's right in the heart of, of, uh, of Streeterville, which is a fairly, um, you know, fairly uh, – uh, nice part of mm-hmm. downtown Chicago. As and I so, said, swanky. Swanky, yeah. <laughs> that was I, my word. That, you know what? I like that word, swanky. That's that, It is swanky. And so some of the swanky neighbors don't like this. And they are trying to say, well, you know, maybe this isn't where we need to have a homeless shelter. This is part of uh, Mayor Johnson's uh, attempt to expand what is happening in terms of what, what's available to people. But, you know, there are so many people oversubscribing this system in the city um, that they're they're looking for all kinds of uh, of, of resources where they might not have looked before. What's interesting here is that it will be closing actually after seven months. There's a, speci- there's a specific contract. This is super temporary. It's super temporary. But in the meantime, all the people who worked there when it was a hotel – They've all lost their jobs. And so there's a lot of discord. There's a lot of disruption. 16 employees at the boutique hotel again, are losing their jobs. Again, it's just – it's incredible to see how 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 that is – what is happening with our shelter system in the city. So, Revy, as temperatures drop outside, right, where are we on, on finding housing for asylum seekers? Well, that's that's exactly it. And, yeah. I, and I'm sure that all of you in your various newsrooms are just – I'm so worried about what is about to be just – just a you know, just a real health problem, and in fact, a human disaster. We got two crises the min- at once. That, mm-hmm. The minute that these temperatures look, what a gorgeous day it is outside today. It's not going to be like this in two weeks or three weeks or what have you. Even if there's El Nino, and we are really looking at a humanitarian crisis coming down the way. And so, to that end, the city is trying to get these uh, these encampments really going yeah. uh, to try to be able to deal with the influx of migrants. And just to put that in some context, there are nearly 12,000 residents in 24 shelters in the city right now, awaiting placement over 3,000 people, uh, nearly 2,600 people at police departments and, uh, and, and over 500 at O'Hare, some down at Midway. The, the arrival numbers are just overwhelming the system. So what we have is a, uh, a situation down in Morgan Park where 115th and Halstead is the location where there's going to be presumably a big tent encampment, winterized tents. Mm-hmm. Imagine winterized tents in Chicago. But it was a 
contentious issue. It, enormous. Uh, you know, 1,500 winterized tents to take in all, so many of these, uh, of these uh, migrants who are arriving primarily from Venezuela. And this is now, it wasn't going to work before the local community was not into it. Uh, uh, Ronnie Mosley, the 21st, uh, the 21st Ward Alderman, was against it. And then he came around on this when it was said, when it was determined with the city that this would only last for a year. So there has been some mo- movement in that regard, and that yeah. is a very big, uh, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is Chicago sort of living up, if you will, to its sanctuary city yeah. status. This is where it becomes real. And you recently reported, Lee, on uh, the possibility of some suburban hotels being used to house thousands of migrants. Fill us in on that briefly. Yeah, so uh, the mayor's team, basically uh, his his deputy mayor and, um, you know, a few of the other top folks had a meeting with uh, some of the big developers in Chicago. And one of those developers, uh, Mike Reski, uh, he's one of the developers behind the Thompson Center. Um, and he kind of started after this meeting uh, where the city was asking these developers, hey, what can you guys do to help us with the migrant crisis? Um, and also kind of briefing them on where the city was on that, he decided to start making calls to, you know, some of his colleagues out in the suburbs, Mm -hmm. people who own hotels, uh, whether those are hotels that uh, are still running. um, Which suburbs do you know? So that's the thing. Don't know which suburbs yet. Um, Mike would not disclose that to me. Um, But, you know, he is he's calling up uh, various mayors in these suburbs and then also hotel owners of either, you know, defunct or uh, basically hotels maybe that just don't have enough folks in there right now and asking them, hey, you know, what what could we do here? Could we make these into temporary shelters? temporary shelters, um, because in his view, um, converting some of these vacant office buildings in the city of Chicago just doesn't make sense um, because, you know, they don't have private bedrooms. They don't have uh, the plumbing that is involved, basically the infrastructure. Uh, On the flip side of this, it might be harder to get social services out to migrants if they're out in the suburbs. Um, You know, they use uh, Cook County Health Services, so you might have to bus them. So, you know, there's pros and cons to uh, each of the alternatives. Well, uh, Chicago's first work permit clinic for asylum seekers, that opened yesterday. John, can you give us quick details on that? Yeah, uh, real quick. So this is apparently, this is sponsored by the White House, but uh, run by a nonprofit in Pilsen called the Resurrection Project. And, and my understanding of it is that it's going to kind of basically be a one-stop shop to help uh, some of these migrants uh, speed up the process of getting their work permits. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, uh, this can sometimes um, take a year to a couple months, and this is meant to cut down on the processing time. Um, you know, so it's just another effort by, by the city. Well, actually, I'm sorry, by the by the Biden administration. And yeah. it comes right when Biden was here in town uh, to, to kind of try and help with this uh, migrant problem. Here. Yeah, right now or it's serving issue. about 150 asylum seekers daily. The, the hope is um, I had a, a, a member of the, the Resurrection Project here in Chicago who was leading the effort locally. Uh, she said that they hope to serve 300 uh, mm-hmm. daily and, and very soon. So it's super ambitious. It, it, it's a remarkable program, yeah. though, in terms of how quickly and effective it can be for people who are who are literally just out on the street right now. And what I fo- found interesting is that the White House is not talking about when the next uh, the next time is that they're going to have a set of appointments that are available for yeah. these migrants. 
I'll tell you, when I've been out there interviewing and going and seeing these tent cities in front of police stations and so on, make no mistake, those people to a person, they are, they are, they're aching to take care of themselves. They, they, it seems to me, and I'm not just gilding the lily here, this is what I've seen and, and felt and reported on, but they, they just want that administrative uh, structure to open up so that they can go and take Absolutely. care of their, their families. Absolutely. It's incredible to see. Before we take a short break, Revy, President Biden was in Belvedere, a half hour east of Rockford this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, briefly tell us what was happening. I know he went from a Belvedere plant to a private fundraiser and then... The reception wasn't quite and what he, he thought. And he caused my commute down the Kennedy Expressway <laughs> yesterday to be about an hour 45. But, yeah, he was up there to sort of take a little bit of a victory lap uh, at the Belvedere plant uh, in, in about 75 miles northwest of the city. Uh, they make the Jeep Cherokee up there. It had been closed uh, apparently through uh, White House back channels, including with President Biden, he had he had talked to a representative, Bill Foster, uh, and there was a real effort here to try to get that Stellantis plant opened as a result of what was also going on with the UAW and their strike action. And so, uh, so that plant is going to be reopened here as a as a as an example, if you will, of President Biden's Bidenomics agenda mm-hmm. and him getting things done. He he actually doffed his jacket yesterday and put on a UAW T-shirt, yeah. which uh, which was kind of interesting. For the cameras. But at the fundraiser, he was met by protesters. He was. And, it, you know, just thousands and thousands, of course, uh, over over what's going on with the Israel-Hamas war. Right. Pro-Palestinian protesters were there. They were, you know, calling for a ceasefire. And there's no doubt that he heard them. He heard them through his motorcade. He heard them when he was inside the fundraiser. And it really does show what some of the cleavages are in the Democratic Party, especially on the on the left side of the Democratic yeah. Party, about about young, young um, people of color, a youth, uh, blacks, Hispanics, and so on. Do not automatically right now say Joe Biden is our man in 2024. It really sets up a dynamic for, for next year's election. Yeah, for sure. it really does feel like this is a big turning point um, for the Democratic Party. We've never seem to have seen this much support um, for Palestine up until now because, you know, this progressive wing is really gaining steam. The father of the Highland Park 4th of July shooter pleaded guilty to reckless homicide charges this week. John, what does his sentence look like? Um, he's looking at uh, uh, 60 uh, days in jail. Um, 60 well, days. 60 days, but it's a, 60 days for a parent who helped um, an, the alleged shooter his son uh, get access to a gun, which um, you know prosecutors are touting as as really remarkable and, and a beacon. I mean, because about this effort to start holding parents responsible when their when their kids get access to these weapons and do terrible, horrible, uh, you know, commit massacres with them. So pleading guilty, did this have Robert Cremo Jr. avoid a trial? Yeah, he was supposed to go on trial this week. Uh, I feel like he was flying a little bit under the radar here. I mean, this was, you know, considered a case with very little, if any, precedent. Um, and I think, you know, um, the uh, state's attorney, Eric Reinhardt, even uh, um, kind of um, nodded to this because he talked about the, the risk of losing in this case was just too great. Well, yeah, let's listen yeah. to uh, Reinhardt himself. We hope that by holding this father accountable and by sending him to jail, we are sending a powerful message to others. Go ahead, John. Uh, well, yeah, and that's just basically it. They did not want to to let this get away. And, um, you know, my, my colleague at the Sometimes Dave Stewart did a great case about, uh, you know, how risky this case was and, and kind of the, the, the long chain of causation. I believe there was a matter of years between when he uh, helped his son – 
uh, Robert Cremo III uh, get a, a gun ownership card in, in 2019 and when this uh, massacre occurred in 2022. And there are a lot of things that could have gone on in between that those, those two events uh, that defense attorneys could have pointed to to kind of break that causation chain mm. and, and, and you know, helped uh, win an acquittal here. Um, so I, you know, it, interestingly too, uh, Robert Crino, the father, um, you know, his defense attorneys also talked about wanting to uh, to protect his son's right to a fair trial. This would have probably been a, a good preview of what we expect if the alleged shooter goes to trial. We probably would have heard a lot of the evidence. In this case, you know, we don't, we haven't heard too much about what investigators found mm. now. You know, there's a lot of details that I think still haven't come out. Well, the director of the Illinois State Police, Brendan Kelly, was also at what was supposed to be the start of, of Robert Cremo Jr.'s trial on Monday. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. You may not be the person pulling the trigger. You may not be the person with the firearm, but you could be held accountable for that conduct. I mean, Lee, do you think that uh, the father's sentence is going to make Illinois parents think twice now about helping their kid get a gun permit? I don't know that that 60 days is really enough. Um, I mean, I I guess any time in jail, uh, hopefully, would be, um, you know, would dissuade people. Um, I do think something else interesting about this case, I think there were some questions about, you know, um, some of the son's behavior, I think, was flagged like years before Mm -hmm. he got this gun. And I think that was one of the major questions is like, well, you know, does that timeline matter or like should the father have really taken that into account? John, I don't know if that's something. Yeah. You know, uh, again, my colleague, Dave, Schreier, he, he reported that part, as part of the plea that uh, the father admitted that he um, he thwarted police officers when he claimed his son's knives were his own in, in a 2019 well-being check. So, again, there, mm-hmm. you know, he's okay. kind of interfering with, you know, what could have uh, triggered a red flag law and, yeah. and help, you know, maybe intervene. Well, Ravi, let's stay in the north suburbs where a big vote on Northwestern's proposed stadiums coming up on Monday. What's the latest on that? Well, this is going to be, uh, this is the not necessarily the end of the, uh, the entire process, but uh, this $800 million renovation for Ryan Stadium, which used to be called Dyke Stadium way back when in Evanston. And will it be sort of slightly downsized, but super modernized and have concerts and uh, a whole bunch of other sort of revenue generating uh, events for Northwestern? Is that going to go through? I should say, I, I want to declare right, right away that I live within within the catchment area of the stadium. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of people who are bugging me about which way they think about this. But the vote will come up, uh, coming up on Monday. And it looks like the mayor, Daniel Biss, the new first-term time first uh, term mayor of, of Evanston, is going to be the person who's going to have to issue a tie-breaking vote on this. Uh, the university has offered $100 million community benefits program to Evanston over 10 years. Many, many people in the community saying that that is actually as, as impressive as that sounds. It's not It's not enough. Uh, yeah. Evanston has a exalted tax status uh, as it relates to Northwestern University. And so uh, many people in uh, in Evanston think that Northwestern doesn't pay enough in taxes. So we'll see how that Monday final vote goes. But, you know, maybe 3,000 jobs could be on the line. Are and, you hopeful? Uh, you know, I, I, I like big events. I do. <laughs> I like, I like football. Stadium. I like, you know, bring Ken, forget Kenny Chesney at Soldier Field. Bring him up there. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I'm just declaring my own personal bias. Here, here's the other thing, too, though, is that, you know, it was only this summer uh, that Northwestern was dealing with the football hazing scandal. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's in the right. background as well. That seems to have calmed down recently. It sure um, has. But it, it, but it is sort of simmering in the background it's there. It's still there. Yeah. For well, sure. I, I will say that sources have told me that Pat Ryan of the Ryan family and Ryan Field, uh, they were, they, you know, very strong sources have said that they were very embarrassed about how these two 
kind of unrelated issues, the stadium and the hazing came together and the, the family was very embarrassed. But the fact that this is still going forward to that final vote on Monday shows that there's a lot of a kind of institutional power behind this. Yeah. Well, let's uh, move from the north suburbs to the south suburbs real quickly. Uh, Daily Southtown reporter made headlines for being ticketed by Calumet City. What happened? It sounds like he was ticketed for doing his job. <laughs> it sounds like. Um, yeah, this story is confounding for reporters, but basically um, officials in Calumet City mailed several citations to Hank, Hank Sanders. Uh, he's a Daily Southtown reporter um, who uh, allegedly violated local ordinances by seeking comment from public employees on major flooding issues in the area. Um Gosh, if we're ticketing reporters for this, then how many of us? Have <laughs> I mean, is it? I it, is I it mean, gonna, I've gotten a ticket or two in my day, for sure. Oh, yeah. Mine are only for parking. Yeah, <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> I just, I just hand to my bosses. You're walking around in your gum boots and you're looking for someone to talk to about the flooding. People want to talk about it. I mean, they shouldn't all be Muslim. I mean, yeah. I mean, enough, enough of this. Poor Hank. Of, free Hank. Let's all get free Hank t-shirts. <laughs> well, the citations were eventually dismissed, uh, so I guess we can all breathe. So a Hank little has e- been freed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hashtag free Hank. We can breathe a little easier. Oh, for sure. Hank. All right. Well, we're almost out of time, gang, but I, I wonder what stories you all are watching out for next week, as if your plates aren't full enough. <laughs> John, you first. Anything yeah, come to mind? I mean, I'm just going to be uh, getting ready to get back to court for uh, Burke. And get, back, get to court. back to court. <laughs> That's the life of a federal courts reporter. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, what about you? Well, uh, I didn't get to mention in our wonderful uh, Springfield roundup uh, that there were also uh, some pension bills that were passed. Yay. Um, so, right. Well, yay, question mark. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, uh, it is going to um, help police and firefighters. So two uh, separate pension bills, um, you know, uh, these were flagged earlier by mm-hmm. budget analysts, um, you know, who worry that this is going to uh, raise the cost of pensions. So um, we'll see the, where that is going forward. Uh, they uh, were passed by both houses of the General Assembly, and they seem to have Governor Pritzker's oh support. So. Looks like they'll become law. There's something will happen there. And 10 seconds left, Ravi. I well, can't imagine okay. there's anything on well, your plate. It, I'm Canadian. <laughs> and, and, hey. I, and I know that winter's coming. And I want the city to be very aware of what that weather is going to do in terms of this migrant crisis. Yeah. And just to put it in very quick terms, there's 30, over 3,000 people at police stations right now. Yeah. There were 6,600 of these migrants back in August. We've got double that now. The cold weather's coming. This is a sanctuary city, supposedly. It is a, going to be a moral imperative, I think, for all of us in terms of how we deal with this. Yeah. Ravi Beshwal of ABC7, Lee John Greco of Crane Chicago Business, and John Seidel of the Chicago Sun-Times. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us. That's it for our weekly news recap. It was produced by Andrea Guffman and edited by Maha Ahmed and Ethan Schwab. We host this panel discussion every week. Go ahead and hit subscribe so that you never miss it. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Enjoy your weekend because you deserve it.
Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.